and turn, turn please to Philippians in chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, I want to begin, I want to read verses 1 through 16, Philippians chapter 3. Upon finding that, please pray with me. Father in heaven, we now come to your word and pray that you would enable us to hear it, to receive it, to comprehend it, to be apprehended by it. Father, that this very word would grab a hold of us and transform us that we might walk in newness of life. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord to write the same things to you as no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised uh, on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law blameless, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. Now, it's our fourth uh, Sunday on, these particular, on this particular set of verses, and uh, I want to, to concentrate on verses 12 through 16 today. But before I get there, I want to establish very quickly what we have already said in the first 12 verses. First, that we are commanded to rejoice. If you're a Christian, you know what that means. That is to say that you know that you are to rejoice in the Lord. You have this sense, this understanding um, that rejoicing makes sense regardless of the circumstances, but there is a sense of joy in the midst of whatever condition, whatever situation we find ourselves. But it's a rejoicing in the Lord. And secondly, this, that we are in the Lord not because we deserve to be, not because it's on the basis of what we have done, but rather we're in the Lord because of what the Lord has done. That is, we have a righteousness that is not our own, but a righteousness that comes from God through faith in Christ. And we understand, you see, from the Scripture, the righteousness of God in two different ways. One, we find the righteousness of God being the very standard of God, which is required for us to be accepted by Him, for us to be in relationship with Him. It's not an arbitrary standard, but it's simply God Himself. This is who He is. And if we desire to be in relationship with him, we must be right with him. We must be righteous. And we must have righteousness that justifies our being a part of him, our being accepted by him, our being in his presence. Now, the great difficulty, of course, is that we haven't, can't, 
meet this standard of righteousness. We are not right. We are not righteous. We can't present anything to God whereby he will declare us right in his sight. Thus, we understand the righteousness of God to not only be the righteous standard of God, but the gift of God, the gift of righteousness that comes from him to all those who believe in Christ. And it comes to all who believe in Christ because our trust, our belief, our trust is in Christ, the righteous one. And so it's his righteousness that is given to us that enables God to justify us, to declare us righteous, right in his sight. Right? So we're to rejoice in the Lord. We're in the Lord because of his righteousness to us, not because of our own righteousness. And thirdly, therefore, we must always be careful never to dilute the gospel because the righteousness, the gospel is Christ's righteousness for us. And if we dilute that, that is to say, if we ever think that we're accepted by God for anything we have done, when difficult circumstances come, we will lose the certainty, the assurance that we really belong to God. Because we're going to think, oh, I must have messed up. That's why these circumstances are so bad. And we'll lose the very ground, the very foundation of our ability to rejoice in the midst of difficult circumstances. But if we don't dilute the gospel, if we really are depending on Christ alone, his righteousness for us, when difficult times come, we needn't worry. Because we're accepted by God. And the difficult circumstances do not come because God has abandoned us or because he has thrown us out, but rather so that he can express in some way to us his love and grace that we would never understood otherwise. So we rejoice in the Lord. It's based on the righteousness of Christ. And we mustn't dilute the gospel in any way, that is, to trust in ourselves, only in him, so that we can maintain this rejoicing. Fourthly, this then, we realize that we are to compare everything with the worth of knowing Christ and conclude that there's nothing like him, that we're willing to suffer the loss of all things, we're willing to count all things as loss for the sake of knowing Christ because he's more valuable than anything else. And so if we suffer the loss of it, we look forward to knowing Christ better. We count as loss Anything we previously thought gained to us, that is, anything we previously thought as righteousness for our being able to be accepted by God. Because we know that compared to Christ's righteousness, our righteousness, as the prophet says, is like filthy rags. So everything compared to knowing Christ, we're willing to suffer the loss of for the sake of knowing him. Fifthly, we establish the fact, therefore, that knowing Christ is the same as having eternal life. That all those who know him have eternal life and all those who have eternal life know Christ because there's no other way to it other than by knowing him and receiving from him his grace and the righteousness that comes from him. And then finally this, we establish the fact that there's a a right nowness or an alreadiness to knowing Christ and there's a not yetness to knowing Christ. That as we know him, we came to know him when we were saved, but yet there's more of him to know. We're accepted by God through Christ 100% justified, but yet we know there's still more of Christ to know. And so Paul said that therefore his desire is to know Christ, though he knows him, but to know him more deeply, to know him better. 
his desire is to know Christ and to know the power of his resurrection. That is, to know the very power that raised Jesus from the dead that brings to us newness of life. Power of the resurrection so we may know him and also to share in his sufferings. Because we know that when his sufferings come, when we suffer for the name of Christ, when we suffer for the cause of Christ, when we suffer for the cause of love, really, and sacrifice for others in the name of Christ, then we know we come to know Christ better because we're obeying him, we're following him, we're living like him, and he will reveal himself to us. All right. We've established all of that. So now we have to ask, now what? What's true now? That brings us to verse 12. Let me just read quickly 12 through 16 again to grab it. Not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. You see, Paul, in establishing all of that, realizes this first, that now, because he's righteous in Christ Jesus, that he has a great purpose in his life. And he has a great purpose in his life uh, because he's been called by God. Notice verse 14, he said, I press on to the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul knows he has great purpose in life because he's been called by God. And when the Bible uses that little word called, and to call it, uses it in a number of different ways. But most specifically, and as Paul intends it here, he's speaking of that call that comes through the gospel, by the Holy Spirit, that enables us to respond to the gospel. He's using it in a very technical term. Um, for instance, in, in Romans in chapter 1, in verse six, verses 6 and 7, Paul writes this. This is catching us in the middle of a sentence. But he says in Romans 1, 6, he says, including you who are called to belong to Christ Jesus, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. He's using call there to refer to Christians because there's this call of God that works in the heart of a person and enables them to believe, enables them to come to faith. That's why in Greek, the word for church is the word ecclesia, which comes from two Greek words that mean to be called out of. And so Christians are called out ones. We're called out from the world. God speaks our name and calls us out. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, in, in chapter 1, for instance, uh, Paul uses this uh, term again. Uh, 1 Corinthians 1, verse 2. He writes, To the church of God, so he's speaking to Christians, that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. And he uses this very technically again in verse 22 of the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. He writes, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. So he says we're preaching to Jews and Gentiles. To one group it's a stumbling block, to the other it's folly. But then he says this in verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. There are some Jews and some Greeks, some Jews and some Gentiles who believe. Who are they? Those are the ones who are called. 
And Paul says, I know that I've been called by God. In a special way, how else could he describe his own salvation? Paul was not a seeker, as we think of people seeking God. He wasn't a seeker. He was, he was out to destroy Christ and everyone who believed in him. And so he was on his horse one day, going to Damascus with orders, so that he could imprison, persecute, kill believers in Christ. And God literally arrested him, took him, took hold of him, made him his own, as he says in verse 12 of the Philippians 3 passage. And so Paul says, God called me in a very special way. And that's true for all of us. Perhaps your conversion was less dramatic than Paul's, but it's no less miraculous, no less personal than he called you. Remember when Jesus went to the tomb of his friend Lazarus, and Lazarus was dead, and he called the name Lazarus. And he said, Lazarus, come forth, forth very personally. And, and you have to think, if Jesus would have just looked at all those tombs and said, come forth, we would have had a mess on our hands. Because the very power of God to raise the dead, both physically and spiritually. And if you're a believer in Christ, you realize it's because God has done a work. And if you're seeking after him, it's because God is doing a work in your heart. He's calling you. And you might say, well, that's nice, but why doesn't God, God call everyone in this special way? And of course, the answer to that question is, we don't know. He just doesn't. But he tells us he does call some. And if you're a believer in him, then you should rejoice in that and not sweat the details because you can't get into the details because you're not God. At that point, you can't understand that. It could have been that there were other tombs around Lazarus who contained the dead bodies of very nice people or people that were someone's father, people someone's mother, child, husband, brother. And, and they may have come to Jesus and said, why did you only call Lazarus? I, I wish somebody would have done that. I would have loved to have hear, heard his response. But of course, no one did. We don't know the response, but that certainly would be how others may feel. But the truth of the matter is, he did call Lazarus, for which Mary and Martha, his sisters, and Lazarus himself should have been filled with joy. And so Paul says, we've been called. We see it throughout Scripture, as God calls this man Abraham, and changes his name, changes his name to Abraham. Abraham wasn't anything particularly special. Just a pagan. Your average run-of-the-mill pagan, no doubt. But God called him and made him his own. Moses, he seemed to have a plan for Moses, to call Moses out, even when Moses was a little child. David, he called him to be his own, he called him to be king. And the prophet Samuel came to Jesse's house to look for the next king of Israel to replace Saul eventually. Uh, he went through all the tall, strong, handsome sons of Jesse until he got to the little kid, the little runt, David. And he made him the king, made him his own. When Jesus was walking around. He called certain ones to be his own disciples. In fact, he would say to them on a particular occasion, you didn't choose me, I chose you. So... Here we realize Paul saying, not that I've already obtained this in Philippians 3.12, or I'm already per perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. That's how he understood his conversion, that Christ had made Paul his own. That's how we're to understand ourselves, that Christ has made us his own. We didn't make him our Savior. He saved us. We didn't make him our Lord. He comes now to rule over us. It's his work in us. 
And this calling always brings great purpose. You know this passage, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Calling always brings purpose, the calling of God. Uh, he writes this, Paul does. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. And this is a promise that we love, but it's a promise really only to Christians. We can't give this generally. It's a promise to Christians. For those who love God and those who are called by God according to his purpose, meaning he has a purpose for which he's called us. And we can state this purpose for which God has called us in a general way. For instance, keep your finger in Romans 8. We're not done there. But turn to Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 6. Ephesians 1, 6. Well, let me begin in verse 5. Catch it a bit as the sentence breaks. Ephesians 1, 5. In love he, that is God, predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ according to the purpose, purpose, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which has blessed us in the beloved. He's saying the purpose for which God has called us, adopted us, called us, is for his praise. We're to live our lives, the purpose for which God has called us. We're to live our lives so that his glorious grace would be praised. People would look at us and say, wow. God is great. That's the reason for which he's called us. And so then he goes over, you look back at the Romans 8 passage, and we know that for those who, God, who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, and notice how he puts the purpose here. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Let me read that again since the microphone went out. For those for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. Purpose, to be conformed to the image of Christ. In order that he, that is Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. That is, that he wanted to glorify Jesus and say the work of Jesus worked. And so you'll be conformed to his image to show that the work of Christ was effective because he was simply the firstborn of those who would come along to be like him, not like him in deity, but like him in devotion to God. So Paul knew that he was called and he knew that there was a great purpose in that calling. So what does that mean? Well, it enticed him, it motivated him, it enabled him then to press on, as he says. Notice again in um, Philippians 3. He says, not that I've already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. He says, I've been made Christ's, but now I'm pressing on to make it my own. Well, why does he, why does he do that? Why does he press on? And when you hear the word press on, it sounds like effort. In fact, it's interesting in Greek. I feel like I'm the father in my big fat Greek wedding. Um, well, give me a word. You know. um, But in Greek, this word press on is the same word for persecute. Because it contains tremendous pursuits and tremendous energy and tremendous focus. I'm after this. And so when Paul speaks in chapter 3, verse 6, he says, I persecuted the church. Literally, I pressed against the church with all my might. 
And nothing would keep me from pressing against the church. And now he's using that same word, interestingly enough, as he's converted, pressing on in a different direction. Pressing on to know Christ. So he says, I'm pressing on. Because you see, in this purpose of God to be conformed to the image of Christ, there's a great prize, he says. I press on to the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's an upward call that is it's a call from glory to glory. And it's this call to receive this, this prize, to know Christ, to be conformed to his image, to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, to, hear the crown, to receive the crown of righteousness that's given to all those who believe. He says, I'm looking forward to this. I'm pressing on. Now, why does it take this pressing on? Well, first, he says, because he hadn't already obtained it. He didn't have it. Now, of course, as we said earlier, to one extent he had it, that is, he had the righteousness that came from God through faith. But now he says, now that, I've, now that I have that, now that I'm accepted by God, I'm pressing on to know Christ better, to know him more deeply, because I don't have it. I've tasted it. I don't have it, but I know there's more. And so he desires to know Christ, desires to know Christ more. And why wouldn't he? Wouldn't you, wouldn't I, wouldn't Paul desire to know better someone who had loved us with their very lives? Wouldn't you want to know that person? Have you read somewhere in your history that someone, other than Jesus, had saved your life physically by sacrificing their own? Being Jesus, they couldn't have risen from the dead for you to know them. But you, wouldn't you want to know everything about this? Why did they love me so? What compelled them to do this? Why is it would they do this for me? Wouldn't you desire to know this one who loved you with such a love that would sacrifice their own lives? And Paul says, I want to know him more. Why not? Why wouldn't you want to know him more? In fact, for Paul, there was no logic in this statement. The statement that says that Jesus is my Savior, but that's it. Jesus, Paul would say, that's crazy. Don't you want to take hold of that one who has taken hold of you? Don't you want to, 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 to apprehend that one who has apprehended you? Don't you want to know that one who has saved you? Because Paul would know that there's a radical change in the heart of a person when they're converted. Something radical happens in our lives when we're converted, when we trust Christ. In fact, something radical has happened before we trust Christ to enable us to trust him. And so Paul says, of course, this is my desire to know him. I haven't obtained it yet. In fact, there's no perfection this side of glory. If there had been, I think Paul would have achieved it by then. But he was still grasping. He was still pressing on. He says, I haven't obtained it yet, but I want to. And so even now, I'm pursuing Christ with all my heart. And the way that he does it is like this. He says in verse, middle of verse 13, he says, but one thing I do, and then he goes on to give us two things to do. But, but he does that. He says one thing, even though he gives us two things, because these two things are really one. These two things go together. You can't do one without the other. And so it's really one thing that he does. He says, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on. So she is pressing on, is comprised of forgetting and striving. 
Now, when Paul says he forgets what lies behind, it doesn't mean that he has a spiritual lobotomy. It doesn't mean that if you ask him, Paul, what did you do yesterday in, 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 in service of Christ? He'd go, I don't know. Uh, it's not that. But he's saying, oh, I'm, going to put out of, I'm going to forget. I'm going to count his loss. I'm going to put out of my mind anything that could hinder me in pressing on towards Christ. This little word forget is a biblical word, and it's the opposite of the biblical word to remember. And when the Bible speaks of remembering, especially in the context of God, when the Bible says God remembered his covenant, the Bible doesn't mean that if you went up to God and said, hey God, is there a covenant? He'd go, I don't know. But when the Bible says that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it means that it is now at the forefront of his mind to such a degree that he's going to act on it. That he's now going to act consistent with the covenant. And so when you read those words in the Old Testament, you go, okay, something is about to happen. Because it just said that God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then when God says to us that he'll remember our sins no more, it doesn't mean, again, that God's not very smart. But it means that he's not going to remember our sins in such a way as to have our sins impact the way he acts towards us. So he's not going to remember them anymore. And so when Paul says, I'm going to forget this, what lies behind, he says, I'm not going to remember them anymore. In other words, I'm not going to bring to mind and allow to control my life anything that will hinder me from this moment on pressing on to know Christ. And so you you imagine that that Paul, on the one hand, never forgot that he was a persecutor of the church. Never forgot that he was a murderer. In fact, he mentions it a number of times in Scripture. But he forgets it in the sense that he doesn't doesn't allow that to keep him from pressing on to know Christ. And any remembrance of it, he allows him to reflect on the wonderful grace of God to motivate him to continue to press on to know Christ. And it's not just our sins and our failures in the past that we have to sort of forget, but it's also the successes as well. Sometimes successes in the past for Christians can keep them from moving on in the future. You know you're always in trouble when you find yourself talking about what happened five years ago in your Christian life or ten years ago in your Christian life. If all you can tell people about knowing Christ is when you came to know him ten years ago, 15 years ago, or even six months ago, forget it. Not in the sense that it doesn't, isn't true, but don't let your past successes hinder you from pressing on. Ask yourself about yesterday. Did I come to know Christ better yesterday? Talk about that. Think about that. Don't let the past hinder you from progressing on. One of the things that I'm always disappointed in myself about is that I'm not a very good historian. I love to read history, but I hate to write it. And so I've written nothing about, some of you are going to be angry at me about this, I've not, I've not written anything about the history of our church over the last 14 years that I've been here. I don't have any great records. I don't have any annual reports. I don't have any yearly course summaries. I don't have any files that said, this is what happened this year in the life of Grace EPC. And I'm almost glad, not totally glad, because I wouldn't mind having something because I can't remember But uh, most of the things. But... But it would be nice to have something, I suppose. But the good part of that is I'm never tempted to go back and read what happened in the past and think we're done. Because we're not done. We have to press on. And we have to press on in the context of our own Christian lives as well. I don't care what lake you walked on last week. Press on to know Christ. 
don't stop. Put behind, forget all those things of your former way of life, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 4, and walk now as you've learned Christ. That's why Paul is able to say in verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way, and if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that to you also. He's going, I'm right here. And if you're not buying it today, you will. And God will convince you of this in some way. So get it now and press on. Keep going on. And then he says to strain forward to what lies ahead, because what lies ahead is great. It's the very prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The very purpose for which we've made to know Christ and to be satisfied by him and by him alone. So we have to ask ourselves the question, you know, do we get it? Do we understand? Do we trust in the righteousness of Christ alone and not our own? Do we understand that we need to now be as disciplined as an athlete in pursuing Christ? You know this passage in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 9, verse 24, Paul says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners compete, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I, may, I myself should be disqualified. Now, of course, Paul isn't really talking at all about our bodies there and care for our bodies. He's using that as an illustration for our spiritual lives. And he said we should be as disciplined in our spiritual lives as athletes are who are training to run the race. That we should be intentional about everything that we think and everything that we do. That everything should be focused upon knowing Christ. And so you see, we've, we've got to watch what we see with our eyes so that it doesn't hinder us knowing Christ. I preached a sermon a number of years ago that's been affectionately termed the Titanic Sermon. Not because it died in the end or was sunk, <laughs> I hope, but because I was mentioning that for the sake of my walk with Christ, I wouldn't see the movie Titanic. A, I know how it ended. And B, uh, there was a nude scene in it. And that I didn't think it would be edifying to me, for me as a man, or respectful for my wife, for me to see that movie, even though it was just moments, they tell me. Well, there's another movie I can't see now. It just came out. I wanted to see it when it was being advertised.
can't remember who said it, and I can't remember what it was about, but it was a great illustration, so here it is. It's a little piece just sticking in my head. Someone had written that at the bottom of Mount Everest, I don't know if this is true, but I'm expecting none of you know because you probably haven't been there either. At the bottom of Mount Everest, there's a little plaque, probably a bunch of them, a little plaque about someone who tried to climb Everest and died in so doing, and so their name is here. The little caption is what's significant. The caption was this. Whatever it was, it just simply said, he died climbing. And I thought, yes. I want to die climbing. I want to die pressing on. I want to die forgetting what lies in the past, striving forward to what lies ahead, pressing on to the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And of course, both the prize and the model is, is Christ himself. You remember that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he was with his disciples and came to the table. And in so coming, he took bread and he broke it. And after giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples and he said, this is my body which is given for you. And then he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And as we come today to this table, think, remember Jesus like this. The scripture says, that when he came, for the cross, came to the cross, he came rejoicing. Now, if you'd have seen the scene on that particular day, you wouldn't have been thinking, probably rejoicing. You would have seen a man beaten, humiliated, near death on his way to the cross, and then dying on the cross. But the scripture says it was the joy that was set before him that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Now, why? How could he rejoice there? Because he forgot past. He put that behind him. Even that he was the Lord of glory and deserved honor and worship. He humbled himself as a man, a servant, obedient even unto death. But he was striving towards the prize. And the prize of the cross was the honor, the glory of his father. People had said, God doesn't care. And he said, oh, yes, he does. People had said, God doesn't love. And he says, oh, yes, he does. People said, God is defeated by evil sin. And Jesus was saying, oh, no, he hasn't been. Watch this. The glory of his Father and our salvation enabled him to rejoice. And the same is true for us. Forget the lostness, the failures, even the successes of the past, because they really don't help us because that's not our righteousness. And we receive the righteousness of Christ, and we strive on from that to know him better, because he is the prize. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this table set before us, and I pray that you would take this bread and take this juice and use it in such a way as to enable us to think upon Jesus and grant to us a great desire for him And, Father, that you would convince us by his life, death, resurrection, 
and his wonderful provision of righteousness and forgiveness to us. But he is worth knowing. He's worth everything. Putting aside whatever would encumber us and pressing on to know him better. So please, I pray, that even in these moments, even around this table, that you would work in us a great desire to know Christ, a desire that nothing else but knowing him would satisfy. And this, Father, I pray, in Jesus' name, Amen. I remind you that this table is not the table of Grace Evangelical Presbyterian Church, but it's the table of the Lord, and he invites to it all those who have been taken hold by him, and thus all those who desire to grab a hold of him as well. He calls to this table all those who understand that their righteousness is not their own, but it's Christ's righteousness. All those who understand themselves, therefore, to be sinners in the sight of God without hope except in his sovereign mercy. All those who receive and depend upon Jesus Christ alone as he's offered to us in the gospel, freely as the Savior of sinners, as the Lord of lords. And all those who desire to live their lives as becomes a follower of Christ, meaning to forget the past, forget what lies behind, and strive forward for the upward call of knowing Christ Jesus, our Lord. So I invite you to come. These two sections who come down this aisle to my left, these two aisles to my right, take a piece of bread, dip it in the cup, and as you eat it, you're going back to your seats, think this. I've been called by God. My purpose is in Him, to glorify Him by being conformed to the image of Christ. I forget what lies behind and strive forward to know Him. Please come.